Welcome to Know, the, the Journal, Journal of, of Lifelong, Lifelong Learning, podcast. Hey there, welcome to the second ever No Journal podcast. It took longer than we wanted to get this second podcast out, but I'm going to make you a promise, and that promise is that we will deliver a new podcast every hour on the hour, seven days a week. Okay, that's not actually true. This is our bluffing show. We'll have stories about securities fraud in the family garage, sending a man to the moon, and how a gang of 12-year-olds deflated one officer of the law. For this first story, I called up my friend Shannon and asked him to describe our junior high. In junior high, yeah, just the vibe of junior high changed. Um, It felt more like a prison. Um, It was on a... a, The junior high was like on on this big hill... Um, the way like the faculty kind of spoke to us, uh, was more prison guard like to me or it felt that way. Yeah. So were you in eighth grade or seventh grade? I was in, uh, it was seventh grade. It was 1987. Junior high is kind of a big deal because all the kids from the different elementary schools around town funnel into this one larger school and that's junior high. And, you know, you kind of want to prove yourself a little bit. You don't know how far you can push things. And we were kind of like bad kids in elementary school too, but it was also sort of brushed off. We didn't do poorly in school. We were just more jokesters. Right. They announced at an assembly that they were going to start this program, or there's a program being started by the city called Lunch with the Law. And this police officer would come once a week and pick three or four kids to have lunch with. He was going to buy them McDonald's. Um, happy meals or whatever, and they were going to go out and have lunch on the lawn outside of school and just talk about police stuff, I guess. So the very first lunch at the law, for some reason, he parked his police car on the blacktop, and we were allowed to play there after we ate our lunch. We'd all go down there, and that was kind of like our 45-minute recess. And his police car was just on the blacktop, I, I guess because he wanted people to look at it like it was a cool thing to look at or something. We went down there and immediately just started thinking of of ways to kind of mess with that car. It didn't take long for us to start daring each other to let the air out of one of his tires. So it was me, um, my friend Morgan, his brother Franklin. Um, We had our friend Eric, who's sort of bigger, stand guard to kind of block us. And and so we we'd, we'd all sit there and we one at a time would would let a little bit of air out out of his tires. Morgan actually couldn't do it. Because his fingernails were too long, <laughs> so so when he when he pressed his you know his his nail against the valve, his nail just bent. Right, and uh, and he just wasn't able to do it. He was the kid who never took his jacket off. It was like his yeah. signature. He really had an issue with trimming his fingernails, cutting his hair, and he wouldn't take his jacket off in class. So 
so th that kind of occupies most of our lunch. No, we think that nobody saw us do it, and we didn't really let all the air out of the tire. We just, you know, it, it was a little bit deflated. I go back to class, we all go back to class. Sometime during that next period, it was like fifth hour, someone from the principal's office comes in with like a, a note uh, pulling me out of class, which wasn't that unusual for me. And I, I wasn't really sure why I'd be called to the office, um, but I was called to the office quite a bit. So I, and, and I get down there and I see that Morgan and Franklin are already there. So I, I, I kind of have an idea of what's going on. Um, they put me in a conference room with Morgan and Franklin, which is right next to the vice principal's office. Our friend Eric is in the vice principal's office, and we can hear the, the police officer reading Eric's rights. We can hear this through the wall. My heart completely starts pounding because I, I've never been arrested before. I'm just 12 years old, and I'm getting a little bit nervous. And, and, and Morgan, Morgan's kind of getting the sense like, like we're, we're in a little bit of trouble here. I get called in the office. My rights are read to me, and, uh, and, the, and the police officer just asked me, he says, uh, did you touch my car? I, I said, yes. I didn't, I didn't even, not, nothing about the tire, and I just said, yes, I, I touched your car. And uh, he says, you're under arrest immediately. <laughs> I was like, okay. So, and he doesn't ask me any more questions. And we, and we go back, and he puts me back in the conference room. I explain to Morgan what's going on, that we're being arrested, and it's for, it's for what we did to his car. So I think it was Morgan's idea initially, but we hatched a plan that we thought, would get us out of trouble. And that plan was to call all of the kids that were down on the blacktop while we were doing this. And our, our thought was that some of them had absolutely seen us near the police car and maybe even saw us let some of the air out of the tire. So we figured everybody's an accomplice. Let's call them all down. There's no way that they will arrest all of the kids that were down there, thus they would have to let us go too. That would be that'd be fair. So we started naming all of these other kids. We named maybe fifteen kids, and just like we thought they would, they completely called all of those kids in the office, read every kid their rights, and asked them if they touched the police car. And all of those kids had no idea what, what, what was going on, what the police were talking about. They had nothing to do with this, this whole thing. And it doesn't take long for those kids to start crying. So maybe after the 10th kid or, or whatever, uh, the police officer comes back in and looks at me and Morgan and just says, okay, I think you guys are messing with me and I don't like it, which... It was really funny to me, but that was our one of our big lies that day. You were giving yourself somewhere to hide, in a way. Yeah, exactly. Hearing you say that, it occurs to me, it's a bit heavy-handed to read 15 <laughs> additional kids their Miranda rights, which is really scary when you're 12. I think the cop knew at that point that something really bad had happened to his own mm -hmm. reputation and was trying to find a way to get out of it himself or at least was so mad that he's willing to go through one at a time and question 12-year-olds about letting a little bit of air out of his tire. 
um, maybe he wanted that too. Maybe, maybe it was, it would have been better for him had it been more kids. Um, sort of a mass hysteria. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what he was they, they swarmed my car. I couldn't. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then that was it. The rest of the day is spent basically being arrested. They, they, they wrote up citations. Eventually, we were all put on probation. Uh, Morgan had to clean out the dog kennels at the local pound that summer. Franklin washed police cars. I don't remember what the other guys did. I had to go to summer school because I had failed several classes in seventh grade and I couldn't do community service and go to summer school. So I actually got out of it with six months probation. How involved was, was the vice principal? He kind of took a back seat through this because he knew he was outranked by the police officer, but I, he knew the whole time that we'd be the guys to do this. I, I, I don't really know how they found out that it was us, but I think that once our names were thrown around, I think he definitely encouraged the police officer to question us, for sure. A good warden uh, knows his charges. <laughs> yeah. They asked us all these questions about like what our parents did for a living. And uh, I was the only one that really had a straight answer. One guy said his mom dated for a living. <laughs> <laughs> one of those guys' dads was growing pot, and there was a little bit of a, a dance around that. Eventually, another guy joined him, and another cop came in. I think they were messing with us and saying they were going to take us down to Juvenile Hall. Right. And I, which just meant to scare us, but like I sort of sat up in my seat a little bit and put my wrists up, like, yeah, cuff me. <laughs> you know, because it was, it was sort of exciting, too. Like, I've never had handcuffs on, and that didn't go unnoticed. You know, they, they kind of, you know, they, they definitely were like, oh, look, this guy wants to go, that kind of, you know, BS. They took our pictures. The cop said to me, I had acne back then, he said to me, Let's let's get this guy's photo before his complexion clears up, which looks kind of dickish. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. Um, it was a few months later that that I had the the hearing. It things started out pretty normal, and then and then he when he was he kind of launched into this thing that he had heard from visiting other schools in the area that not only did I not have any remorse about what had happened, but I was actually kind of bragging about it, which I don't remember, but I'm sure it was completely true. But I guess like some other kids had mentioned it to him, you know, like at the elementary schools that, that I was kind of boasting about it, which I thought was going to be really bad for me. But I, you know, he kind of stuck to his original six month probation. My dad did a couple of things. First off, when, when he said that, that I was boasting, my dad just kind of, you know, glared at me a little bit. And then when the cop asked me, why did you do this? And I'd been practicing. I knew he was going to ask me, why did you do it? And because yeah. uh, Morgan had gone before me and I said, peer pressure. And my dad chuckled. <laughs> my dad, he, <laughs> he completely like blew my cover. He was just like, you know, and I, and I looked, I was like, hey, man, <laughs> like I'm trying something here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, yeah, so instead of doing the community service, um, I had to write an essay about peer pressure. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely. Uh, that was like kind of like the buzz phrase at that time, peer pressure, you know, how to avoid peer pressure. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't remember really getting in big trouble with my parents, but just mm-hmm. a lot of like, oh, man, you're screwed now kind of vibe was, is what I, what I got at, at home. When, when all of a sudden I was dealing with the police, it wasn't even like they didn't feel the need to punish me so much as just being like, it's out of our hands now. <laughs> you're, now you're here. And there's nothing we can do, um, which is kind of kind of true. Um, 
And that was the only time I was ever arrested. That was it. Yeah. Do you think do you think those two facts are related? What I didn't know before was that messing around in class was completely different than messing around with the city. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Yeah. You know, it seemed like school was not not a, a real place. It was a good place to experiment, to kind of mess around. Everything was very low stakes at school to me, uh, in the classroom yeah. and everything. Um, right. I didn't worry about getting in trouble. Uh, I didn't obviously didn't worry about getting detentions or anything like that. I guess because that his police car was on school grounds, I sort of assumed that we were all playing by those same rules, and uh, and we weren't really. No. You know? <laughs> when did you when did you first realize that? Oh, when 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 he uh, when my rights were being read to me. Wow. Yeah. What are you going to do when uh <laughs> what are you going to do when Henry comes home from school letting the letting the air out of some cop car's tires? I'll tell you what, you know, um yeah, I mean, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, um I'm hoping I'm trying now to kind of raise him in a way that that he won't think that stuff is fun. They have reason to want to send a message that messing with police cars is not a good idea. I'm also just trying to be more involved at his school. So if they have lunch with the law, you'll be there. I will be there. I'll be in attendance. I think that we live in Brooklyn now, too, so I think that, that that'll cool his heels a little bit already. Do you ever think about that officer? Like, I picture him going back to the station house, and uh, I probably watch too many cop shows, but just everybody is ridiculing this guy. Okay, that's funny you bring that up. That's what my mom said. When my mom, after, so my mom was there during the sentencing, and when we left, my mom's impression was that he had been teased by other police officers. It kind of went over my head, but my mom caught it, that it seemed like it was sort of a, it was an emotional thing for him, which I guess explains why he stopped doing lunch with the law. Um, right. I, but I, and I think that if you want to look at like an error that he made, um, is that I think parking the police car on the blacktop is sort of a mistake. <laughs> like, why would you do? You know what I mean? Like, it, I, 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 it seems like he broke protocol. <laughs> like, you know, if the car had just been in the parking lot, it just would have been a normal day for everybody. But the fact that it was kind of in our play area, you know, I mean, that's we were, that's where all the kids were supposed to go um, and play down there, and to have his car just sitting there is a little bit ridiculous. And it, I get the feeling somehow that he probably was the the person most impressed with that police car. <laughs> right. I, I think that's, yeah, like... <laughs> you I, know, like, check it out, kids. And, and like, when you, were, when you were, like, seven, police cars were pretty cool, probably, or I, wherever the cutoff is. I, but I don't feel like junior high kids think that fire trucks and police cars are that interesting. I, I, yeah, I think that, that we can kind of assume that since he had heard from like elementary schools that had been bragging about it, that he was still doing lunch with the law at elementary schools, but had realized that junior high was, was too late, you know, <laughs> that, that, that it, he, he couldn't reach out to us at that point. We'd already made up our minds, good or bad. This next piece from Nathan Dalton, we hear about a grown-up con man and the teenage nephew who took him down. 
I have a crazy uncle. I think everybody has a crazy uncle. His name is Steven. My family came to the U.S. in the late 70s, and they lived in, in New York. But it was like the New York of the, the 70s. Gritty and sleazy. And so he came here when he was maybe 16 years old. And he just inserted himself into the, the life of sleaze. <laughs> drawn to it. Sleaze and money. Hanging out in the old time square, running stuff, money and drugs and guns. But he was too smart and too ambitious to stay in that world. And so he, like everyone else in my family, became a computer programmer. <laughs> he was like this Russian hood kid, but he became a computer programmer and he did really well. He worked at NBC and he became friends with like cast members of Saturday Night Live because that's exactly who he would fall in with is the people that like were doing drugs basically. But the thing is, is that he had and has really big ideas about himself. He's ambitious, he wants to be a big shot and he realized quickly that making it straight as a software engineer had its limitations. So since he was living in New York and, and he already had a taste of the criminal element, he just went to the biggest criminals of all. He went to Wall Street and he became a stockbroker. And he was really, really good at it. And he had this ability to sell things. And he could do it over the phone. And he would sell whatever he was selling. And of course he got my family involved and stuff. And everybody got burned. He wanted to have his own brokerage is what happened. And he got tired of working for other people. So he moved to San Diego because his family was there. And at first, he actually remember he rented this house. You know, him and his brother lived there, and it was just they would have parties there, and it was just there was like alcohol everywhere. It looked it just, and there was a pool that was like full of garbage. So, so you know, he wanted to be the, not just a stockbroker. He wanted to be the, you know, the company. So what he does is he starts bringing guys over from New York. He convinces my dad to let him convert our garage, our like three car garage, into a boiler room. And so there ended up being all these guys in my garage with headsets calling all day. And what they do is they would get somebody who had an actual license and they would all just be that guy, you know, whatever, David Cohen, whoever it happened to be. And they would be David Cohen. All these dudes, like 20 dudes would be David Cohen. And at some point, my uncle was also David Cohen, I think. So they were all doing it this way, and they, but it was kind of like haphazard, but he started to make money doing it. When I was a kid, he would pay me to transcribe some of their calls. I would sit there listening to their calls, and I would kind of type them out, and they would use it and kind of refine it, and then give the scripts to the other guys. He didn't need a script. He would just go, and they were just very, very aggressive. If you didn't want to buy, he would, they would insult you. Like, you're an idiot. When's the last time you got laid? They were making money, but they were limited how much money they could really make because they were not, you know, it was all like kind of under the table. So he decided to make it legitimate. He actually created a brokerage that was sanctioned by the SEC, even though he was, they were not disclosing how they were doing it exactly. Because he was Russian, he wanted me, since I was born in the United States, to tell him what to call it. They're like, you know, you read books, right? You read books. You're always reading books. Like a law firm, you know, like John Grisham, like, but make it like a law firm. He's like, make it white. Don't make it like a Jewish one. I think that I named it Fletcher Faraday. Fletcher and Faraday. 
I don't know where they came from or what it is or wh what it means. They liked it. So they used it. So they became Fletcher and Faraday. So they were doing that for like a long time. And then they got, he got in trouble and the SEC like found out what he was doing and like shut him down. Eventually he starts like a coffee shop, a coffee chain and opens up a few stores, raises enough money. And based on that, he goes public. Now, at, at that point, he was already in trouble with SEC, so he couldn't be a CEO. So he created like a corporate structure that he controlled. In the end, it ended badly and everybody sued everybody. And it was just like a horrible, terrible thing. And my family actually got sucked into it and, and, and insulated himself personally from everything because he wasn't on anything. He wasn't on any documents. He technically wasn't there, wasn't a part of it, you know, but it was all him. And, uh, and at, the, so at the same time, he started a tech company. I don't know that it was a sham company. I think there was a real company, but it was never clear what they did, where they did business, how they made money. I, what I do remember is that they bought advertising on NASCAR stuff. And there was like the name of the company was on NASCAR cars. That ended badly, of course. And I think in the end, I think the SEC like leveled like millions and millions and just ridiculous amounts of fines on him. He would just kind of move on to the next scheme and then eventually it got to more like kind of like selling shares in a storage facility in, in nevada somewhere that never was never was built never was going to be built but at that point he had this like really crazy incredible amazing house that he'd been always putting money into money that he had never technically earned himself my grandparents lived there with him you know that's kind of how he made it legit is because he was taking care of the grandparents I was close to my uncle, and I was, when I was a little kid, he always take me to buy video games, and, you know, he was it was very, really tight family. But he always tried to get me involved in his stuff, right? Because he, he thought I had potential to do whatever garbage he was doing. This was the kind of uncle who would constantly be, like, trying to get you laid when you're, like, a kid, when you're, like, 13, like, like you know, it's time to get you laid, you know? Every time, every time you hang out with him, around them, we're going to get you laid. Let's go. Let's go get you laid. So anyway, so so jump forward and and things are just so twisted and, and and like I said, my parents have serious serious legal problems because of this guy now, and I confront him and I tell him that you know that's it's crazy that it got to this point. This is my dumb immigrant family, but you know at this point nobody really had lawyers involved, and I was like I, I told him I said I'm sorry, but I'm getting my parents a lawyer and you better get your own lawyer because that's it. He didn't like it. He didn't like it, and he, you know he told me as much and he was being really really aggressive with me with me and i'd seen him do it to other people and i realized i'm like oh he's been doing this shit to my to my parents for years for years he's been like he's been bullying them this way like that like what he's doing now what he does to his marks to the people that he sells shit to he's been doing it to my family forever getting them to kind of cover for him and he went crazy and he like you know we had a physical confrontation <laughs> so basically i got in a fight with him and, and after that, I left, and I got my parents a lawyer, and I told them that, that's it, you are not, you are not to talk to me about this stuff at all, and I would prefer you not to talk to him at all. That was kind of the end for him, because once, once my family was removed, once he had, had no more access to my family as a kind of a buffer, all his defenses that he was using to evade authorities were gone, and... The U.S. attorney like brought some case against him. 
and he ended up going to federal prison. And of course, my family paid for his defense, of course, right? They wanted to put him away for 25 years. He only ended up doing five years. You know, it was sad because, like, he really had seen himself as, like, Donald Trump or something like that. Like, he thought he was a big shot. But I guess he's part of the reason that I became a lawyer. Because his scheming eventually got my parents and me into trouble. I never wanted to be a lawyer. That was one of the things that I swore I would never do in my life. There was enough of a practical reason just to protect my family that, that drove me to it. And, you know, that was part of what motivated me, which is a very pra practical immigrant type thing to do anyway. You know what I mean? It changed the way that I thought about it. And uh, I, I certainly would never have ended up going to law school if that hadn't happened. There's no way. She got out of jail. He was pretty, like, freaked out about going back to jail. And he was, like, straight. And by, his wife but divorced him while he was in jail. But, of course, like, you know, he's the master manipulator. He convinced her to let him let him move in with her when he came back. So he's, like, living with his ex-wife and his kids and stuff. And um, he's not allowed to, like, you know, because he's, like, a felon. He's not allowed to have certain types of jobs. There were also other problems because they wanted to deport him. Everybody in my family, they all came to the United States. They all became citizens, but he never became a citizen. And they wanted to deport him. But they couldn't deport him because there was nowhere to deport him to because he was from the USSR. Now there was no more USSR. And in fact, the geographic region that he had been in was Ukraine, which is an independent state now. You know, they certainly didn't want him. Russia didn't want him. His release from prison was delayed because they didn't know what they wanted to do with him. So, he's, so he goes back home and he's not allowed to like do a lot of things. He's just kind of hanging out and he's mellowed out, I'm told. And then I guess at some point they allowed him to start working again, doing certain type of things. And he got a job as a telemarketer. And within like a month, you know, the old Stephen was back. You know, it's like a telemarketing job where you make like 10 bucks an hour. But he had, in he had instantly become the highest producer, the highest earner, and started making like good money really, really fast. Which is not a surprise to me. He moved out of his house and somehow convinced somebody to lease him a mansion for like $10,000 a month. And he was calling up all the members of the family, asking them for money so that he could pay for the mansion that he was renting. The king, you know, the king is back, right? He's about to, you know, he's, he's about to take over again. That's so he thought. As usual, you know, nothing, none of that stuff works out. Gets in trouble again. He's afraid that he's going to go back to jail. He does not want to go back to jail. So I guess what happened was that he kind of, I think he voluntarily sort of deported himself to Mexico. He went to Mexico. And as far as I know, he's in Mexico. In fact, some of his kids came, went and stayed with him. I think it's insane and it's dangerous. But he's in Mexico selling shit over the phone, even today. Maybe he's better or maybe he's better off in a place like that. He seems to like, he knows how to grease the right palms. And But that's the weird thing about him is that for all his ability and natural talent he can never get far in any legitimate clean way he can never understand that he could have been so successful and and done that all above board and he would have been fine i never understood he had certainly had the ability to do it i mean he could sell anything i i don't know if i'll ever see him again i don't understand how that would ever happen i could totally see him i could totally see him i just i could go with his kids i'd go tomorrow if i want I'm sure that I could.
I know also that he would instantly try and get me involved. I know that. I mean, that's what he does. I don't have to say for the millionth time, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm sure if you've worked at NASA, you probably object to the term bluffing being applied to your work. But there's a point where you have to decide that a certain amount of unknown risk is acceptable. You are, in effect, bluffing yourself that you know it's going to work out. Because you never do. And in this story, you is actually an extremely large group of people. Really, really smart and talented people. For a perspective, I spoke to Don Shields. Shields was a consulting pilot with Northrop Grumman on LEM-5, the lunar excursion module that would go all the way to the moon. After I left LEM-2, my next assignment was LEM-5. We realized uh, sometime during that program then that if LEM-3 works okay in Earth orbit, and LEM-4 works okay in lunar orbit, LEM-5 just might be the one to land on the moon. We realized at least a year before the landing that Armstrong and Aldrin were going to be the first on the moon. When I first joined LEM-5, it was simply an empty metal shell. They were just getting ready to do the first pressure test of the shell itself, nothing installed inside. So they put it in an altitude chamber, and that was the famous episode where the window blew out. No one ever could figure out why the window blew out. It was, of course, there was nothing left but tiny bits of crystalline glass all over the altitude chamber. There was no way to track any source of the failure, why it failed, the cameras didn't pick up anything unique. All they could do was just to say, well, everything else has worked. Every other test we've done has worked. How come this didn't work? We don't know. Let's try it again. Well, we went the rest of the way through the program. We never had another failure. So that's remained a mystery in the trip to the moon. They had to look at all the data they could find, everything, every step of the way, the entire production line of uh, how the glass was made, where and who did what, a tremendous amount of analysis to see if you can find that core reason. Never could. But the lifetime of any, especially space program, is fraught with and filled with asking those questions. And the imagination, the experience, uh, the knowledge that everyone has comes to play in, in attempting to analyze and figure out what do you really have to worry about? What do you really have to be ready for? Uh, there are so many unknowns. Now, there are not any unknowns in the flight to the moon, the orbit, the landing, and all that. Those things were very well known even before this program ever came along. But putting man into the equation, trying to solve all of the what-ifs, 
it was an ongoing challenge the entire time. I'll relate back to the Apollo 1 fire. The Apollo 1 fire was a horribly unfortunate situation, but it revealed the danger of working with pure oxygen in, in a pressurized system. Things that are normally not considered to be flammable at all in a pure oxygen environment burn. Stainless steel burns in pure oxygen. It's just, it's amazing. Well, the Apollo 1 was getting ready for launch. It was the first manned launch of the command service module. So they were sitting on the launch pad and uh, one of the things they always do is every, th every time you set up for a launch, you check out everything, you service all the systems, you fill all the fuel and oxidizer tanks, you fill the oxygen supply system and the water system. All these things had to be done to see is everything working so far. And so it's, it's a full up serviced vehicle sitting on the launch pad ready to launch into space. In order to prepare the crew area, they had to pressurize, first of all, they had to service the command module with 100% oxygen because that was the environment that was going to be on board for flight. But then they needed to pressurize the command module to the pressure differential that they would have in space, which is about five pounds per square inch pressure. But on Earth, there's already 14 and a half, 15 pounds in the atmosphere on the spacecraft. So the, the literal absolute pressure inside was actually 20 psi or more, way above normal air pressure. It's that excess air pressure of the oxygen itself. Then a spark somewhere, they never could identify exactly, a spark, a hot wire, a filament, a who, they, they just wasn't able to track it down, ignited. And once it ignited, the entire inside of the spacecraft literally exploded. All the oxygen was consumed well, the numbers I've heard is within a few seconds. That uh, information is important because you, you need to realize, in that case, the crew did not suffer. Uh, unfortunately, of course, there was no survival, but they didn't suffer. It was uh, uh, all over immediately. That threw the entire space program into a huge upset. Everything had to be reset. Everything had to be backed up. They had to ask themselves, wait a minute, that can happen here. Can it happen anywhere else? And so they started going back and they had to reevaluate all the materials that were used inside the command module where the crew launched and lived most of the time. All the materials that were used in the lunar module also had to be reevaluated. 
took a lot, a lot of work. Of course, that was a, a real trauma for the space program because it set the program back a couple of years. The only thing that came out of it, uh, other than the fact that there were good solutions to some of the problems, is that they uh, they were able to uh, trim down the weight. And the reason that was good is because for each pound of weight, this was in the 1960s now, for each pound of weight we could save, we would save $100,000. So it was important to everybody. Well, uh, then uh, uh, we got back into uh, production, and uh, the, this is when I joined the program after the Apollo 1 fire. After the LAM-2 was set aside, I worked over to LAM-5, and for the next about a year and a half or two years, on the factory floor, testing out the lunar module, all the way from the, the basic, does the light turn on, does the light turn off, all the way to, to uh, uh, do all the ca calculations work and does the system work, even to the fact that in the final testing, uh, before Grumman re uh, released the lunar module to NASA and then shipped it down to Kennedy Space Center, we had uh, uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin come aboard and they actually f flew uh, simulated test flights in the factory they faked out the lunar module to make it think it was actually flying, and uh, uh, they ran it through the uh, uh, all the procedures that would be done. Of course, there was no burning of thrusters and and uh, attitude control and all that, but you simulated that, and when you'd move a control, the, there was some system that would tell the computer, you went that way, so the computer would say, yeah, it worked. I was... Uh, in an unusual position because I got to uh, be in the lunar module when Armstrong and Aldrin were doing these final tests. There were some things that in the course of simulating, they had no connection to certain instrumentation outside the lunar module. So I was assigned to sit inside the lunar module and record that data while Armstrong and Aldrin were flying the aircraft. Cool. That was uh, that was the final test we did at uh, Grumman in, on Long Island, and at that point, everything was packed up, and they packed up the lunar module and shipped it down to Kennedy. Uh, and all of us who were going to support the launch, we all packed up, and got our families all set up. And we all went down to Florida. My second son had just been born, so he was three or four months old when we went to Florida. For the next year now, the uh, lunar module went through retesting. After the shipment, NASA wanted to be sure nothing jiggled loose, you know, nothing was damaged. And uh, the VAB, there was special room set aside for preliminary testing and preparation. That's the Vehicle Assembly Building, the building down at Kennedy Space Center that is so big, so huge, they actually have weather systems inside the building. 
and it's over 400 feet tall. Uh, uh, I was able inside the VAB when the Saturn V is, was at its complete assembly, 363 feet tall. I was able to go up in the rafters of that building. There was access up there and look down on the entire Apollo 11 Saturn V rocket. Very impressive. After we completed the uh, preparation of the uh, Saturn V, and as you recall, it was completely assembled inside the VAB. Uh, then it rolled out on the giant uh, tractor assembly and uh, to, up to the launch pad. You see pictures of it. You see the uh, escorts walking along the uh, path. Oh, it, it takes a day. Yeah, it's about two or three mile trip. The launch pad now, if you know Florida, you know that Florida is flatter than Kansas, except that it just has more trees. And uh, so the launch pad itself was built on a rise. They came in with a ton, million tons of dirt, built up a platform like. So the launch assembly tractor has to go up that incline to get up to the top. But the, the vehicle cannot tip like this. The vehicle has to stay straight up. So it tilts, literally tilts on the launch as it goes up and everything stays straight up. And then when it reaches the top, it, it flattens out into full vertical position. Well, it's, it's an all day trip. Three miles, I think it is, something like that. We didn't bother to watch it. We just knew it's going to take all day to get there. As we approached lunch, then there was a final test examination to be done. One NASA equipment engineer from NASA and myself from the contractor, the pilot, made the final inspection of the lunar module. Uh, it's akin to when you're going to fly an airplane, you make a pre-flight of the aircraft to be sure everything's all set, ready to go. That was our job on the lunar module. When we finished that, we closed the door, clicked it shut. There was no lock on it. There's no keys in, in spacecraft. It's in an area that's just below what's called the command and service module, and that's the pointy part of the rocket. And if you look at a model of the Saturn V, you'll see that just below the crew area uh, and, the, and the crew uh, rocket assembly, there is a tapered area that, uh, which transitions down into the actual launch rockets. And in that transition area, it's, there are actually large pedals that open up and expose the lunar module. And so uh, that's where the lunar module rides until after they make the burn to send the whole system to the moon. It's called the translunar burn, my words. And uh, so 
we closed the door on the lunar module. Then there was an outside access hatch. The uh, quality people, they closed that door, sealed it, and the lunar module was there ready to go. I hope it all works. And it was another two or three days before the command and service module on the top of the rocket was actually ready to go. They had some more servicing that had to be done also. The only thing that I couldn't miss was the launch, and uh, which is quite impressive. And for those who have never seen a Saturn V launch, that's a huge event. It's far bigger than any shuttle launch ever was. Uh, far more impressive. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. I watched the launch right outside my apartment in Cape Canaveral, Florida, about five miles away from the launch site, and it was a perfect place to watch the launch. My wife had gone through years of taking care of the kids, taking care of the house, while I went off and worked ridiculous hours. When we got ready for the launch, each of us who worked on the launch was given one pass to go to the VIP launch stands. So I said to my wife, here, you take the launch pass and go watch the launch, which she did. And uh, I was real happy that she got a chance to get up close. But you could be anywhere within a 10-mile radius of the launch pad, and you had a fantastic view. It was, uh, it was really, really something. Uh, we, heard, we had reports that uh, people actually... Uh, at some distance, uh, there was a report that people up in New England, 900 miles away, heard the noise of the rocket. It was so intense. There was no way you were going to avoid hearing that rocket. No way. Anywhere in the state of Florida, for sure. Once it was launched, it was on its way. It took three days to get to the moon, so I had three days to get back to Grumman on Long Island, where Grumman had the, the Apollo support room for the mission. And that room was manned any time the lunar module was being activated or operated. When the command service module and lunar module, all three, arrived in orbit around the moon, of course, the first thing that happened was Aldrin and Armstrong manned the lunar module they undocked from the command module, and now they're orbiting around the moon, two different spacecraft. They're chasing each other around the moon. When the two vehicles got on the backside of the moon, getting ready to make the lunar module descent burn to start the landing, there was no communication with uh, anybody 
and the spacecraft. Walter Cronkite said to Nelson Benton, his uh, reporter on site at the Grumman facility, we've got some dead air here. We need somebody to talk to. Anybody who was watching their TV as the lunar module was on the backside getting ready to land, if they watched Walter Cronkite talking to some clown wearing a white cap and a white gown, uh, I'm the guilty one. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Okay, T1, stay no stay. Retro. Stay. Fido. Stay. Guidance. Stay. Control. Stay. Telcom. Stay. GNC. Stay. Econ. Stay. Surgeon. Stay. Capcom, or stay for T1. Hey, it looks like we're vending the oxidizer now. Roger, Eagle, and you are stay right, for T1. Over. Eagle, you are stay for T1. Venting ox. Roger. And we stay for T1. Roger, and we see you venting the ox. Pyro safe. Roger. Roger. We've had shut down. We copy you down, Eagle. Okay, everybody, Houston, T1. Uh, stand by for T1. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're looking good here. Okay, we're going to be busy for a minute. Okay. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. Uh, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. We were in the support room for that. That was tense. Everybody was waiting for anything at all that could possibly happen. And of course, the wonderful thing is nothing did happen. When they returned from the moon, uh, of course, I was still in, the, uh, in uh, Long Island with the Grumman support room until the lunar module ascent stage, the top half of the lunar module, went back up and rejoined with the command service module. We were still supporting at that point. Now, once the crew went back into the command module and they closed the door and undocked the lunar module and said uh, sayonara to the lunar module, uh, then our job was done. And of course, the, then the, the trip back was another two and a half days. So by the time it splashed down, I was back down in Florida and uh, saying to myself, what next? For the full interview with Don Shields, go to nojournal.org slash lunar, where you can hear about some of his other adventures. 
That's our show today. Thanks for listening. We'll do our best to get back at you as soon as we can. Journal is a project of Literacy Works, published by Paul Heavenrich, produced by Liam Nelson and Nathan Dalton. Visit nojournal.org for more stories, and please sign up to receive this podcast. Thanks for listening.